Amen. You may be seated. Thank you once again, worship team, for leading us to King Jesus today. Also, thank you to Jim and Holly for getting uh, the communion elements set up faithfully every month, and we will be taking communion together a little bit later along this same theme today of our Lord who makes it possible for us to be with Him, brings new life and changes us in His presence. And so today we're going to be continuing our study of John's Gospel. We're going to be in John chapter 2. The Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, those are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did He claim? What did He do? What was the impression of those who followed him and heard him all throughout that story that leads up to Easter? We're only four weeks away from Easter. And really that was the aha moment, the eyes opened for Jesus' disciples as now it all made sense. If Jesus gets up from the dead, that changes all those things that we heard him teaching. That changes what we had observed all along the way. This is a whole new paradigm. And so we're going to see that theme here in John chapter 2. This is a couple of stories that happen here in John chapter 2. Two main stories. One, Jesus is at a wedding feast. They run out of wine. And so he miraculously changes water into wine. How many of you have heard that story before? Okay, If you haven't, we're going to read it together today and you'll get to dig in at a new level if you have. Let's pray that we hear with fresh ears today how God is speaking to us through this event. The second story, Jesus goes into the temple. He drives out some of the animals that are there. He flips over some tables. There's some anger. There's some zeal demonstrated. How many of you have heard that story before? Okay, These are the two episodes in John chapter 2. And really, Jesus is ushering in a whole new way of interacting with God. And these, these uh, practical examples are ways that he is demonstrating the arrival of God's kingdom. Chapter 2 fits in with some other things that are coming up down the road. In chapter 3 and 4, uh, there, there's a series of signs that Jesus is performing. Here we've got the water turned into wine a little bit later. Jesus is going to heal one of the official sons who's on the point of death, at the point of death in Capernaum. And really, there's this theme of Jesus' glory on display that we're we're being introduced to here in John chapter 2. The best wine is saved for last. The temple is cleansed. There's new birth that he proclaims in chapter 3 to Nicodemus. There's living water. Not the kind of water that you're going to be thirsty from again in a little while, but living water that is constantly refreshing and restoring. It's new. There's worship Not just singing songs, but worship in spirit and in truth that comes up in in chapter 4. There's the need to bring in the harvest and to pray that the Lord of the harvest sends laborers. There's healing. There's new life. These are the themes that we're we're getting into here as we see the glory of Jesus revealed beginning here in chapter 2. So let's read together now this wedding at Cana. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What's going on here? Well, there's a wedding, there's a a celebration, there's a feast. 
there's a party. This is not a, a fast. It's not a time of mourning and abstaining from food. There's a party going on. There's a celebration happening. But now there's in, a, in an honor-shame culture, there's a real risk because the provision for the feast has run out. One of the key elements of a celebration is having some fruit of the vine, some wine, some, some beverages to share with the guests to celebrate this wedding day. And so Jesus' mother is there. His disciples are there. We learn at the end of this narrative, at the end of this story, that Jesus' brothers are there. Brothers and sisters would be a better translation of that Greek word. Um, brothers, plural, it's kind of like in Spanish, you know. Um, if, if you're speaking generally of your siblings, you could say hermanos. If you're Aiden, on the other hand, you'd have to say hermanas, because all he has is a bunch of sisters, right? So in Greek, it works kind of the same way as in Spanish. When you see that word for uh, adolfoi, plural for brothers, it'd be like siblings. So Jesus is there with his, we would say, half-siblings because Jesus' dad is God, right? There was the immaculate conception as, as, uh, as so Joseph is not biologically the father of Jesus, Right? And at this point in the story, we don't see Joseph in the story. In fact, we don't hear about Joseph for the rest of, of Jesus' life. The last time you see him would have been back in one of the synoptic, <laughs> tongue twister there, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where you see Jesus at the age of 12. Joseph is there. We don't see him at the crucifixion. We don't see him in, a, in Jesus' adult life. It's likely that by this time in her life, Mary is a widow. But there are some other sons or sons and daughters that were born to them as a couple. And some of these siblings are there at this wedding day in Cana as well. So when Mary comes to Jesus and she says they've run out of wine, what exactly is happening there? Mary has not seen Jesus perform a miracle prior to this time. The text here tells us this was the first of Jesus' signs, the first of his mighty deeds, the first of the public miracles that he has performed. Maybe it's just that because as a widow, she now has a, her oldest son, Jesus, who has, is the person, the man that she's turned to to come up with a solution. When there's a problem, there's a need, there's a crisis. That could be one explanation of why she's bringing this to Jesus without a real expectation of, you know, that he's going to miraculously provide more wine. She's notifying him of a very practical, natural need. I would say one, within the text, there is a pattern of conversation starting with Mary and continuing on in the temple, later with Nicodemus. The people that Jesus talks to begin by speaking of natural things and Jesus raises it to a whole new level and he speaks of supernatural things. So in a very natural way, Mary's coming to him saying, you know, they've run out of wine. This is... This is a catastrophe. It's a wedding. We're supposed to be feasting and celebrating. There's no more wine. The, the host is going to be shamed for not having enough provision for the guests that are here. And Jesus hears that natural statement of Mary and raises it to a supernatural level. You see that later as he talks about the destruction of the temple and the, the, uh, the Jews that are there, they're, they're thinking in natural terms. You're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. It took 46 years to get it to the point where it is today. Jesus is speaking at a supernatural level. 
in chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and he says, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And he's thinking in natural terms. Nicodemus is thinking, well, can I as an old man re-enter my mother's womb and be born again? That's ridiculous. And Jesus is speaking at a supernatural level. And so this need is brought to Jesus. And really, there's a lot, a lot happening here in what Jesus responds. My hour has not yet come. And that word hour, you'll see that throughout John's Gospel, pointing to Jesus' death on the cross. So at one level, he's looking at this as an example, as a living parable of something that's yet to come. But it's bigger than just a cross because it's not just a day of grieving and sorrow that John's gospel points to. It's the resurrection. It's the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. It's ushering in a whole season of feasting and celebration and life where the wine is flowing and there's a celebration because what was broken is now mended. What was lost is now found. The old has gone and the new has come. And so what Jesus is about to do is really enacting what the Old Testament pointed forward to, the arrival of the day of the Lord, the hour when Jesus' glory is revealed and when all around him see him for who he is and the party just gets started. So Mary's human level statement is responded to by Jesus with this transcendent level reply. And so what happens now? I think Mary's instructions to the servants are, are a great, you know, if you want to take one tweetable quote out of John chapter 2, this would be a great one to take, right? She says, do whatever he tells you. And there's, a, there's an element of faith here without really knowing exactly what he's going to do, but just those instructions, Jesus can take care of it. Servants, whatever he tells you to do, just follow his instructions. Trust him. Entrust yourself to him. Let him guide and lead and see what happens. And so Jesus gives some clear instructions and the servants are listening and they're obeying and they're following. Verse 6, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and sisters and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, it's not just a, a, a little tidbit, uh, incidental bit of information there in verse 6 that we're, we're hearing about these six stone water jars 
that were for the Jewish rites of purification. It's an easy, easy detail to kind of gloss over because we don't know what any of those words mean, right? Well, in the old sacrificial system, if you, if you read the first 39 books of your Bible, you'll read about a way that humans interacted with the one true God, maker of heaven and earth. And there was a sacrificial system where there was the need for animals to be sacrificed to pay for the penalty of sin, to make atonement for the sins of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. There was water that was used as well as purification. And these stone jars were big jars, you know, holding each 20 or 30 gallons of water that was used for ritual purification. So you want to be cleansed to be able to enter into God's presence. There were uh, procedures that you followed. There were traditions that you adhered to to make you right with God, to be able to enter His presence, to have your sins cleansed. Sacrifices were a part of this. And Jesus is coming in with a better way. A better way than the Jewish purification rites. It's, it's this enacted parable. And in this parable, in this example that Jesus is living out, right? It's, it's not a parable that's told in story form. It's the kind of parable that he's demonstrating and showing. But you're seeing elements of other echoes later in John's Gospel and in the New Testament of a bridegroom and a master and a time of feasting and celebration. And the best wine in abundance here, you know, if you do the math, we're talking 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine that Jesus miraculously produces. There's a feast. And, you know, John really makes it more explicit. If you look ahead, if you, if you kind of cheat and skip ahead and look into chapter 3 of John, let me just read one verse here. From, this is from John the Baptist speaking of Jesus in John 3, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And in just a chapter, John the Baptist points to Jesus, says, that's the bridegroom. Don't confuse me with him. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm celebrating because he's becoming greater and I'm becoming less important, less significant. I'm fading to the background. John the Baptist is like that 45-degree mirror tilted so that the light of God's glory radiates out to a watching world. He says, the story is not about me, it's about him. And here we're at a wedding. We're at a feast. We're at a celebration. The bridegroom is brought in. How come you save the best wine till the end of the party? When people have had a little bit too much to drink and they can't savor those delicate notes and flavors in the wine, they won't even appreciate it. Give them some cheap boxed wine and they'll be happy. But no, the best wine is saved for the end. And it's a time of celebration. Jesus is enacting this parable before his disciples, the servants who are in the know, even his own family members, and all the guests at the wedding feast. 
you know, when you look at this, the, the text says this was the first of his signs and he manifested his glory. And yet this is really, if you look at the story, it's only a semi-public proclamation of Jesus' glory. Because there's a lot of people present who are just enjoying a good glass of wine at the wedding and don't know where it came from or what's really happening behind the scenes. That parenthetical statement in verse 9, though his servants who had drawn the water knew. There were some people in the know that knew exactly where this best wine came from. And they saw the glory of Jesus revealed clearly. His disciples, they saw and believed in him there in verse 11. The servants in verse 9 knew. But a lot of people at the wedding didn't really know what was happening, including the master of the feast. He didn't really see where the wine had come from. This is how it is for followers of Jesus today as well, right here in this room. You know, part of being salt and light in the world is that if you have a real eye for what Jesus is doing and you've really heard his voice and you've seen his glory manifested clearly in your life, in our world, in his word, and you begin to testify of that truth to others and you begin to live it out and put that glory on display, people around you will benefit as a light on a lampstand brings light to all around, as a city on a hill is not hidden, but it stands there as a beacon, as salt that preserves and seasons and flavors. And there'll be people in your life who may not get the full picture of the glory of Jesus. They may not know what's really going on behind the scenes, but in you and through you, they'll begin to be drawn and get a glimpse of who he really is. A better way than the Jewish purification. And Jesus reveals his glory. Well, that, that echoes back to what John had predicted and prophesied and written about in chapter 1. In the introduction to John's gospel, verse 17 of John chapter 1, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's glory that's being revealed now. And it's better than the Jewish purification. It's better than the law of Moses. It's this grace and truth and the glory of Jesus that some people are now catching a glimpse of. And their lives are forever changed. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you put faith in Him? Maybe today you're at the level of the disciples at the end of this story. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. That's a good place to start. When you see the glory of Jesus on display, when you see Him manifesting His glory, demonstrating His glory, showing His glory in your life, glory is a, a word related to light. It's radiance, luminescence. And when you see God's light going forth in your life, in your circumstances, in our world, maybe when you see a miracle that He performs, a sign, a mighty deed, that's what causes that faith to increase in you and you put your hope in Him, you entrust yourself to Him, you believe in Him. But just a caution, by the end of 
John chapter 2, there is a caution that there's a deeper, deeper level of belief and trust than just being impressed by the mighty deeds that Jesus does. I believe the caution to us is to seek the face of God, to seek the heart of Jesus, not just seeking his hand. It's not just because Jesus turns water into wine and I've got some really, a really good uh, glass of wine here that I can enjoy that I should believe in him and put trust in him. It's not because of the good thing that he produced or gave. It's not because, you know, my son, if you're, if you're the Capernaum official, your son was on the point of death and Jesus stepped in and overturned the laws of nature and did a miracle, a healing. That alone is not a solid basis for faith and trust and belief in him. Now, those are awesome things. Man, if, if, if he works in a supernatural way and manifests his glory in your life circumstance in that way, how many of you are thankful for those times when you've seen God work in an unexpected way, unexplainable way? And it does build our faith. It does increase our, our trust and hope in him. Just like Nathaniel in chapter 1 when he was skeptical until Jesus said, yeah, before you, uh, while you were still sitting under the fig tree, I saw you there. And then he believed. And he, he had a personal uh, experience of that sign that Jesus was using to demonstrate his glory. Really, the greatest miracle is Jesus' gift of new life. In you, in the people you love, in those that he's placed within your sphere of influence for you to bring that good news to. And I hope that you rejoice and believe and trust because of that revolutionary, life-changing, better way that comes through the life of faith. I hope you rejoice as much in that miracle of new life as you do in those things that come from God's hands, those blessings that are unexplained, provision, healing, those things that we celebrate, a, a glass of water turned into wine. A something ordinary transformed into something to celebrate and rejoice in. But give thanks for the change in your life and in those who have had an encounter with the gospel and use that to prompt you to bring good news, right? Because there's a lot of people that drank that glass of wine that day but really didn't see the glory of Jesus manifest. And then there were others who maybe missed out on that miracle and didn't even taste the wine, but they saw Jesus as he is, as the king, and surrender to him. And there's an even greater miracle of new life. Well, the risen Lord makes all things new. And the story there in, at the wedding in Cana now transitions as Jesus is showing a better way than, than the Jewish celebration, celebrations and festivals. All these symbols of the Old Testament, the ways that people interacted with God. He's giving new meaning to those. So let's read on here the second story here in John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is showing a better way than the Jewish Passover. That feast commemorates when God delivered his people from Egypt in the book of Exodus. And so they're celebrating hundreds of years later, celebrating, remembering when God stepped into human history and worked in a powerful, miraculous, divine way, leading his people from a place of slavery into freedom and toward the land of promise. And Jesus says, if you think that was awesome, there's a better way. There's a new exodus from not just the oppressor of Egypt, but sin's oppression, sin's tyranny. There's a new promised land, not just the land of Canaan, but life with God. New life in Him. And it's time to celebrate. And Jesus goes into that scene there at the temple where people from across the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem during this time of feasting and, and celebrating and remembering, uh, commemorating what God had done when He led His people out of slavery. And, you know, it was more convenient for you to purchase an animal to sacrifice right at the temple than to have to transport your livestock from home all the way there. So really, the, the people who were trading in animals at the temple were doing a service to those who came to worship and sacrifice. So that was one category of people that Jesus is confronting here. You've got those who are keeping the livestock. They're selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons their motivation is good. It's to provide the sacrificial animal that each person will need to come as they worship. The money changers also are providing a service. You know, from across the Roman Empire, faithful Jews coming with different kinds of currency. But there in the temple, they would only accept the coins that were minted entire because they're a, a more pure silver. This is a good quality coin that was used to pay the temple tax. If you're a Jewish male age 20 and up, you'd have to pay half a shekel of this coin minted entire, a pure silver coin. And so whatever currency you brought, you would exchange. Well, the money changers charged a little bit of a fee for that service to accept your currency and convert it to the coin that was used to pay the temple tax. So what began with a good motivation had now become something corrupt. And what used to happen outside the temple was now brought right into the place that was designated for worship. And Jesus comes in and he's setting things straight. His actions seem pretty harsh. There's a whip. But, you know, to fashion a whip to drive some oxen and cattle out of a, an enclosed space is not unreasonable. You probably need a crop to get them moving, right? He's overturning tables. There is some zeal. There is some emotion and some energy there. And there is a, a public spectacle happening. He's drawing attention to himself for sure. But really, he's in line with all the faithful worshipers of God throughout the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 69. And just as David was great, there's now a greater descendant of David who's coming in. And he's upholding this place of worshiping the one true God. He's zealous. He's consumed with zeal. 
I would encourage you to, to this week go back and read Psalm 69. It's not just the direct quotation from Psalm 69, but really John 2 has all kinds of echoes from that psalm. Back in Psalm 69, it's a messianic psalm. It's pointing forward to the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah is God's anointed one, Jesus. And in that psalm, you'll read about having water up to the neck. Hear any echo there? How far did they fill the did the servants fill those those stone jars, those Jewish purification jars, all the way up to the brim? There's a need for salvation in Psalm 69. There's thirst. There's a discussion of brothers. There's drunkards making song. There's sour wine to drink. And there's coming judgment and salvation. John's tapping into some of those themes from that Psalm 69 as he tells the events that are happening here early in Jesus' ministry as he shows his glory. Jesus is saying there's a better way than the Jewish Passover. There's a better way than even the Jewish temple. And so right after this episode with overturning tables and driving livestock out, The Jews come and they're asking for justification. Why have you done this? Who do you think you are? What right do you have to come in and make statements and quote from Psalm 69? And they say, they say this in verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What kind of a miracle are you going to perform that will validate what you've just said and done? Prove that you have an authority in this way, in the temple of the Lord. And Jesus says, I've got a miracle for you. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? Again, natural versus supernatural language. And here's, here's the clue as to what Jesus was really talking about. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, there, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's when it clicked for the disciples at resurrection. Up until that point, really throughout John's gospel, we're getting a, a preview of what's to come at the very end. When Jesus says to his mother at the, at the wedding, my hour has not yet come. The reader, that, that's kind of like one of those little previews of something to come later. Huh, I wonder what he meant by that. I'm going to keep that in mind while I read through the rest of this eyewitness account. What does Jesus mean when he talks about my hour? And now Jesus is talking about the temple of his body being destroyed and rebuilt in three days. What does he mean by that? And it wasn't until the resurrection, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday in four weeks, that it all clicked. And the scriptures, the Old Testament, and the words that Jesus had said recorded here in John's Gospel all made sense to Jesus' disciples at that point of resurrection. A better way than the Jewish temple. You know, there were, there were concerns here in this story, concerns of having the, the right sacrifice to offer at the temple, 
Concerns about making sure you've got the right coin to pay the temple tax. Concerns by the Jewish leaders of who is this guy coming in and upsetting the equilibrium, the status quo. And in the midst of all this is Jesus showing the better way. What are your greatest concerns? You know, as you're sitting there, maybe somewhat distracted, it's kind of an unusual posture for us as Americans to be in, right? I mean, how often are you sitting in a row of chairs without dialogue happening, listening to someone lecturing for 20 minutes? <laughs> or, or thereabouts. And there's some discipline required, right? Because, you know, there, there might, you might have a watch buzzing on your arm or a phone vibrating in your pocket. And what are those notifications? What, what kinds of concerns are you being notified about by your electronic aids? And what's going on in your own head today? Tax season coming up. Stuff you got going on this week. Home repair things. Issues at home, at work. Problems with the kids or the parents. Money concerns. Like probably a lot of this worldly things that tend to cloud our thinking, right? Normal, natural. Maybe you just want a bottle of milk. It's simple. It's my kid, just so you know. I'm not just picking on this poor lady. I'm married to her. And Jesus is coming in. He's saying, you know, there's more than just the, the sacrificial animals, the temple tax. Even the, as impressive as the temple is, there's something greater. There's something supernatural. Are you more concerned about this worldly things or about the kingdom of God and the glory of King Jesus? That's not something our phones buzz and vibrate and notify us about. It's not things that our brains automatically dwell on and ruminate on. Where are we storing up our treasures? The risen Lord makes all things new. And then finally, there's a little, a little note right at the end here that just gives us an insight into really what's happening as Jesus is showing his glory. The last few verses here of John 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sounds just like the disciples back in verse 11. When they saw him manifesting his glory, they saw the sign that he did. The first of his signs there at Cana in Galilee, his disciples believed in him. Echoes of that. Now, many people, there's other signs that are not recorded here in John's Gospel. At the end of John's Gospel, there's a verse that affirms that. There's many more things that happen that I can't record here. If I were to record it, it would fill every book that's ever been written. But there were other signs that Jesus was performing. Other people seeing his glory. And they believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There's a play on words here in the Greek. So when it says that they believed in his name, you could, you could say they trusted in him 
but he did not entrust himself to them. It's it's the same word kind of flipped around there. So there's people that are seeing the hand of Jesus, as it were. They're seeing the actions that he performs, the mighty deeds. And they trust in him because of what he has done. And yet he's not entrusting himself to them because he really sees into their hearts. And they believed when they saw the signs. There is a, there, there's a, an echo of an Old Testament passage in Jeremiah 17.10 here. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You know, that, this is not something you and I can do. And it would be a, an error for you to think that you can read the internal thoughts of that person near you. Most of us make the mistake of thinking that we can read everyone else better than we actually can. And then on the flip side, thinking that we can hide our inner thoughts and feelings better than we actually can. So it's possible that other people can read you a little bit better than you think they can. And it's just possible you might not be quite getting it right when you think you know what's going on in that heart or that mind next to you. But God can look right into your heart. He knew every day of your life before a single one came to be. He knows every hidden thought and intention. He looks right into the heart of who you are. That's what Jeremiah tells us about God, and that's what John tells us about Jesus. They're one and the same. Jesus knows what is in a person. Now, what does that do for you when you know that there's no secrets from God? Everything is open and exposed, naked and defenseless before Him to whom we must give an account of ourselves. What emotions, what thoughts does that evoke in you? I'm probably a mixture, right? I mean, in the one, on the one hand, there's some stuff that you wish no one could see or know. And so maybe that fact that Jesus knows what's in you brings some fear or some shame or some guilt. Hopefully that's not all. Hopefully you also know that he looks into you with grace and with love and with a desire to see your life aligned with his purposes for you. And when he looks into you, he knows every hidden hurt, every pain, every disappointment, every tear you've shed, and he loves you and he cares about you. So hopefully there's a mixture of both sorrow and joy in knowing the truth of this verse that Jesus knows what is in a man or a woman or a young person. He looks right into who you are. He knows your name. He knows what happened this week and what's going to happen in the week to come. But there should be hope as as you continue in your study of John's gospel that he is the good shepherd. He knows his own and his own know him. John tells us in chapter 10, verse 14. There is a way of really knowing him as he is, just as he already knows you exactly as you are. There is a genuine faith option. It's not just those who put faith in him because of what he's done, but there are those who belong to him, who really know him, and he calls us his own. He wants you to know him. He wants you to seek his face and seek his heart. Don't just seek his hand. So today, for those who are at that point, and you're saying, 
Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. I've seen his glory. I've put my faith in him. For those who are Christians and followers of Jesus, today we're going to be taking communion together to remember when he didn't just turn water into wine, but we're going to take wine to symbolize and remember that we're in a feast. We're in a celebration. The bridegroom has come. There is new life and forgiveness of sins. Through him, there's a better way than Passover. There's a better way than the temple. There's a better way than Moses. Grace and truth has come. The glory has been revealed because the Son of God is here and he's risen and his words are true. And that's what we're going to celebrate together today. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're visiting here, we're glad to have you here. We welcome you here. And this is part of the service for believers. And so you're welcome to observe and participate. And if you'd like to follow Jesus, I'd love to pray with you after church today, okay? So let's stand together. We're going to give thanks. And then I'm going to dismiss you to go ahead to the tables to receive the elements of communion. And then once everyone has been served, we'll take that together. Lord God, we thank you for your great love and your faithfulness. We thank you today that we've caught a glimpse of your glory right here in this room today. The miracle of changed lives. As we look in the mirror, as we look to those around us, those who were dead in their sins and trespasses now brought to new life in you. God, may that joy fuel us in our activities this week. Help us to not fixate on normal, this worldly things, today's needs, But Lord, give us eyes to see your glory and your kingdom. Make that our greatest desire, our greatest concern this week is your greater glory. That the world would know you through our words and deeds this week. And God, today as we take communion, we we remember your sacrifice. We give thanks to you. You are glorious and worthy of all praise and honor in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.